African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on African Dialogue. It's a new week. It's the 1st of February. Can you believe it? That January is already over. And uh, hey, it's going to be one of those years once again where the year just goes by very quickly. But thank you for joining us on our program. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Online, we are on www.channelafrica.co.za and on DSTV on Channel 902. Well, today, the African continent, especially in Southern Africa, still battles the intense heat waves, scorching temperatures and little rain. Food supply seems to be under immense pressure. So today, we'll be looking at uh, the food security issue in Southern Africa. But before we get into that, let's get our news from Anne Musa. In the headlines, UN Secretary General Ban Ki moon urges strong ownership of climate goals. Lesotho's Prime Minister Pagadita Musasidi's party remains largely unchanged following an electoral conference and South Africa receives the Alma Award for curbing malaria. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. African leaders need to take strong ownership and put into place the global agreements made on climate change and sustainable development. This according to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who was speaking at a press conference at the AU summit in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Matthew Wells reports. Mr. Ban said he hoped to see as many African leaders as possible attend the official signing of the Paris Agreement at UN headquarters on April the 22nd. Following his press conference, he took a field trip together with the Deputy Prime Minister of Ethiopia and Chief of the World Food Programme, WFP, to see for himself the impact of drought and the El Nino weather phenomenon, which has created huge food insecurity and health challenges for much of Africa in recent months. The unprecedented environmental challenges facing the world were inextricably linked to an unprecedented array of political problems, he said, pointing out that 37 countries were in crisis, leaving 120 million people in need of humanitarian aid. Chairperson of the African Union, Idris Debi of Chad, has encouraged member states to use dialogue to solve problems. He concluded the 26th summit of the AU in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The meeting mainly discussed political crises in Burundi, South Sudan and Burkina Faso, as well as terror attacks in Somalia, Nigeria and Kenya. Debi, speaking through an interpreter, elaborates. 
I would like to appeal that we take stock of all these issues that seriously undermine our progress and development. Much as we need to be firm against terrorism and internal crisis in the states, the key word should be dialogue. We can no longer tolerate that thousands of Africans die because of political struggles, and we are going to follow with keen interest and great vigilance the development of the situation in these countries, particularly in Burundi and South Sudan. The Executive Committee of Lesotho's Prime Minister, Pagadita Musisidi's party, the Democratic Congress, has remained largely unchanged following an electoral conference at the weekend. When he opened the conference on Saturday, Musisidi lashed at his members for disunity and losing support in urban areas. However, it seems the membership still has confidence in its leadership. Ntakona Gatana reports. The DC Electoral Conference ended in the wee hours of this morning after a 48-hour marathon. Musisi his deputy, Mungani Mulemiki, and Secretary General, Rale Chati Mokosi, remain, as well as Treasurer and Minister of Finance, Nampono Hakika. A new face to the executive is advocate Ritsibisite Masinete, who has been vocal in the media about the party. Changes could have meant implications for the government coalition, but it seems they are not major. And finally, South Africa has been awarded the 2016 Alma Award for achieving the Malaria Millennium Development Goal target at the African Union Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. President Jacob Zuma received the award during the African Leaders Malaria Alliance meeting for heads of state and government of the AU. Malaria cases have decreased in South Africa by 82% and the deaths have also decreased by 71% since the year 2000 to date. Recapping our top stories, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon urges strong ownership of climate goals. Lesotho's Prime Minister Pagadita Musisidi's party remains largely unchanged following an electoral conference and South Africa receives the Alma Award for curbing malaria. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you to Anne Musa for that news update. It's seven minutes past 11 o'clock and you are still listening to us right here on Channel Africa. And remember, this is African Dialogue. Hey, we want you to interact with us on social media. So do go to our African Dialogue Twitter handle. That's African Dialogue at African Dialogue. Simply titled that. That's where you can interact with us there on uh, Twitter. We want to hear your views today. We're looking at food security. So do uh, give us your commentary on what you think about our topic today. We're looking at the issue of uh, really the drought in the SADC region. South Africa, amongst other SADC countries, is forced to import maize as drought and soaring temperature levels have destroyed crops. South Africa will need to import about 930,000 tons of yellow maize 
and uh, these are worth uh, 137 million US dollars that's a lot of money from countries like Argentina and Ukraine now the drought has damaged crops in the free state and northwest which uh, uh, compromised uh, or rather comprised of 64% of output in 2014 the local price of white maize has risen 27% in Johannesburg this year and that of yellow maize used mainly as animal feed by 13%. Late rains at the end of February were not enough to salvage crops as most had already been pollinated. So we're going to look at this particular topic. We're joined by Wandile Sihlob who is an economist from Grain South Africa as well on the line we've got Mr. Ishmael Sunga who is the Chief Executive Officer of the South Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions. Let's start with you, Wandile, uh, in terms of the issue of how has this drought really affected us in terms of food security? Uh, but thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I just want to flag up the first, like, like you said, that you know uh, we will be importing around about 900 and something. Uh, our official estimate of Grain SA is that for the year 2015-16, meaning that from um, 1st of May 2015 up until the 30th of April this year, the imports, we estimated them around about 970, 900 being, of course, uh, the yellow maize, the rest is being white. And that's reflective of how much the drought has actually caused. And, of course, that is reflection also of what has happened in the previous year because we remember that the current conditions that we are facing now is, is not the first time we're having drought. Last year we had a low, we had drought, and uh, South African farmers lost uh, a lot of their produce. They have planted the usual area of around about 4 million hectares uh, in total of all summer crops, and they lost around about 27% of the production for Maine, specifically having lost around about 30% of the, of the production, which means the financial losses by Maine alone were estimated to be around about 10 billion rand. So farmers were already under pressure. And now coming on to have to plant between uh, in, from uh, mid-October last year coming on to the end of December, that's where then they we find out that a lot of guys are already under financial stress and uh, it was fairly dry and I mean they planted some of the area there around about uh, a crop estimate committee says we planted around about uh, uh, 1.99 million hectares the usual one is always around about 2.6 so there is around about 22% decrease in the area of production and the other crops like your soybeans, sunflowers the impact is there so the cost of it at all in the farming community is more financially on their side and also the fact that they can't go on production but for consumers, we are already seeing it in the prices. What means prices having increased to levels of one hundred and fifty percent than a year ago, and yellow maize, of course, having increased by hundred percent. So the feeding industry and the livestock industry is feeling the impact in there. Broadly, is also being affected. But I, I know that maybe the guys from Sakao will also just give a perspective. South Africa, yes, is in a very bad situation, but one would, using the logic I just used now. The region, most countries of the region, if not all countries of the region, are um, in a worse of situation. So in combined terms, we are looking at um, a very desperate situation, which is uh, decimating um, the incomes of farmers, if I were to speak of farmers first, that uh, they are going to go into major financial um, uh, problems. Uh, which will call for action, which we can discuss along the way, what are some of the options, but which also, I think, um, is going to affect, um, as it is obvious, the general populations um, in the different countries in southern Africa, and much more specifically 
those that are um, living in the hinterlands of, uh, of the different countries. Uh, indicative um, of uh, the problem also is that we will need to be much more long-term now. We will need to look at what are the fundamentals that we need to put in place to be able to manage this better in the future and to be able to uh, harvest much more from mm-hmm. the resources as we can sure. have in terms of rain. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll go to uh, Mr. Daniel McLaren, who's the senior researcher at studies in uh, a poverty and inequality institute. Today, we are looking at the issue of food security in Southern Africa. A question that we're asking to you, are African governments doing enough to prepare for environmental disasters, such as the drought in Southern Africa? Give us your thought. Go to our Twitter handle, at African Dialogue, or give us your thoughts about SMSing us on plus two seven seven nine. Six nine five seven nine three zero. We'll be back with this conversation. The time right now is eleven fifteen Central African time. We would like to get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station is it via shortwave internet or satellite and what do you enjoy listening to you can sms us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine oh five or email us it's at info at channelafrica.org you can also tell us via facebook or tweet us on the handle at channel africa numerical one or write to us at the address P.O. Box 91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Moshata. I'm right here on African Dialogue. Today, we're looking at food security, a follow-up from our drought story. Uh, some time ago, we were looking at drought and what's happening in terms of the uh, trends in terms of agriculture. But we see there are a lot of implications when it comes to this particular story. So today, we're focusing on the issue of uh, food insecurity in the region. We know that uh, there is a real um, problem when it comes to the availability of maize. We're joined on the line by Wandile Sitlobo, an economist from Grain South Africa. We also have Mr. Ishmael Sunga, who is a chief executive officer from the Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions. We have also Daniel McLaren, who is the senior researcher at Studies in Poverty and Equalities Institute. Let me move on this conversation to you, Daniel. Thank you as well for joining us on our program, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me. Now, let's look at the other implications. We've looked really from uh, the perspective that Wandilia brought forward in terms of maize prices, and Ishmael also spoke a little bit about the impact this particular drought has on farmers. What other areas does this drought actually affect when it comes to food security? Uh, are there other areas we should be looking at as well? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, if- Food security, ensuring food security for, for every person is a, is a complex challenge because it does intersect with any number of uh, other areas. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's production and when that's affected by drought, that affects prices and, and that Im- immediately affects consumers. But there's also many other areas of, of the, of the 
um, political society that, that get affected. So if we think of education, um, schools in South Africa, one of the most successful programs we have in South Africa is the provision of meals in schools. But if those are also become more expensive and, and the meals that are getting provided in, in poorer schools become less quality, then that obviously affects a learner's ability to learn um, in schools. In the health sector, there's, there's a huge role that departments and ministries of health can play in terms of uh, supplementation, in terms of dealing with people, obviously, who are hungry. Um, and there's, there's other areas, too, which, which get affected when, when people are affected uh, by, by food insecurity. And obviously, at an individual level, um, it, you know, particularly in children, it really affects the, the development of the child. In South Africa, we have around one in four children who are affected by stunting. And, and that's shown to have direct uh, implications for both physical and cognitive development. So whilst there's a, there's a child who's not getting either enough food or the food that they're getting is not of a sufficient uh, nutritional quality, that's, that's really condemning them to an immediate disadvantage um, in life. So when we talk about uh, solutions to the food insecurity that, that's being mm. experienced, we, we do just need to be cognizant that while production is important, there are other... Sure. Um, areas that are affected and other areas in which the state uh, can play a role in trying to alleviate. Mm. I think you're bringing in a very interesting area, which is the sociological impacts as well. I want to move back to you, Wandile, uh, as we've covered really the impact of uh, this uh, issue of uh, food security. But uh, we know that uh, the maize shortage will lead us to importing from other countries. Looking at Southern Africa, a country such as South Africa, where is it looking at importing? And uh, why would we be choosing those specific countries that we're importing from? Uh, look, uh, for example, uh, like, like I said, you know, 2015 uh, May, 1st of May up until the of April, we have set our estimated grain SA for total maize at 970,000 tons. And uh, really about 90% of that has already been imported. But I think where now everyone is looking at and to also say it's going to be a bit of a challenge is that 2016-17, meaning from the, uh, the 1st of May this year up until the end of April next year, to say how much is actually going to be coming and where is it actually going to be coming from. The last year's one was mainly coming from South America. You know, a large part of it was from Brazil and Argentina, and white maize came from Zambia and Mexico. And uh, the reason being that, you know, there are some of the issues around the GMO varieties. Uh, you find out that South Americans do plant the same maize that is being planted in South Africa. And also the pricing mechanism in there was also cheaper to import on that side. And now looking forward, uh, we have placed our total maize uh, imports for the 2016-17 market year grain at around about 3.8 million tons. And we really estimate that, you know, around about 1.1 million tons of that will be white maize while the rest is going to be yellow maize. And the likely places of where that maize will actually come from, the white maize, we think that it's mainly going to be coming from Mexico. The reason being that, you know, around about, uh, you see the global maize production, you know, we have, for example, this year, we're expecting around about 970 million tons of maize in the globe. But only 98% of that is yellow maize. 
you find that white maize is pretty much in really a, a scarce commodity. It's mainly produced in Africa and outside the continent is Mexico, and the United States produces around about 3.5 million tons of maize. So that's the, the, the whole complexity. Hence now, even if you look at the, at the prices of the maize prices, you see that white maize prices have jumped way higher than, 50% higher than the yellow maize prices, mainly reflective of the scarcity of the supplies of that. So because of that, we think that, you know, once mm. again, Mexico would be the country that would be supplying South Africa, and also they grow non-GM maize in Mexico, which mm. can come flow freely to South Africa. But that does not mean that South Africa does not grow GM maize. Around about 80% of our maize is GM, and that's what has led to successful production over the years. But the varieties, or maybe the types of seeds that we are planting, are not those that are being planted in America, for mm. example. Mm. And you see us flowing to certain markets, South Americans, Ukraine, for example, and yellow maize, will also be one of the possible countries that will be exporting their maize to Africa. Mm. Uh, let's move that to you, Ishmael. Is this a, a good uh, strategy to take uh, the uh, points that were brought to by uh, Wandile, uh, where we're actually importing Ukraine, South America? Uh, is this a good strategy for us to deal with this problem? Um, that could be one of the options. My view is that um, the source of um, imports is going to be uh, tied up with... Um, to a large extent with the financing arrangements. Um, and on the understanding that most governments may not have the capacity uh, to uh, finance from their own internal resources, one would um, think that in all probability, the sources will be bilateral sources, will be multilateral sources, maybe the open market, uh, obviously, and then NGOs and perhaps other sources. If one takes into account this financing architecture. It basically means that um, the source may be determined by the arrangements between, say, uh, the UK and country A in Southern Africa, and that may come from maybe via that World Food Program. Uh, depending where food, pro- where food Program is sourcing it from, it may be sourcing it from within Africa, which may be logistically uh, a nightmare, but still worth a go at, but it's more likely going to come from where they get it the cheapest and the fastest from overseas. Um, and NGOs similarly would probably want to react as quickly as possible. And if logistical challenges from sourcing the product within the region or within Africa itself, um, ultimately I think the reality would be that they'll have to import it from, from, abroad, from abroad. But my short message is that, one, most governments don't have the capacity to deal with the problem. And secondly, it is the one that is paying for the product, um, bilateral, multilateral, that, will, that may have a bearing mm. on choosing mm. where it is going to come from the quickest and the cheapest. Mm. And it's true, we have logistical challenges when it docks at the ports in Durban or in Mozambique or elsewhere. How does it then get uh, distributed? That perhaps is the greatest challenge, the logistical ni- nightmare beyond beyond um, uh, the oceans when it goes on the ground because we don't have sufficient rail capacity and rail and, and, and uh, road capacity uh, and, and, and transport sure. to get it not only to the main centers in the different countries but where the problem is more acute is in the hinterlands. Now mm. from the main centers it could be Lusaka, it could be uh, Blantyre or Lilongwe. How does it then go beyond? And what time it takes? So the problem is actually unfolding in, at a very fast rate 
And uh, if we are not careful in dealing with it to source from the cheapest and the quickest, we may end up with a much more serious disaster than it is currently. Mm. And another disaster that we could be facing from this import is the price of maize itself. And we know that in Southern Africa, there's also the uh, challenge of poverty, inequality. Moving on to you, Daniel, how would this kind of importing of maize actually affect the price of maize and also create more inequality in this region? Yeah, I mean, uh, Wandile may be able to speak more directly to some of the projections that are being made around food prices, but there's no question that for the past year already, um, we, we have started to see food prices increase, um, depending on the produce and anything from you know 20% to 100% um, annualized increases, and um, that will of course directly impact the the poorest uh, people the most. Um, in South Africa, you have around uh, 50% of the population live below the upper bound poverty line in South Africa, which is a poverty line of just over $2 a day. And that's a poverty line which research has shown if you're, if you're in or around that line or you drop just below it, you, you start having to make choices around the foodstuffs that, that, that you can afford and generally quality gets uh, sacrificed uh, in, uh, for quantity. Um, and for every 5 or 10 rand less that people have in their pockets as a result of, of increasing prices, that, you know, that, that's going to immediately impact people's uh, access to food. And, that's, and it's really crucial in South Africa because production, um, if, if, if all the food that was produced in South Africa was shared equally, um, which of course will never perfectly happen, but if it was, there would be more than enough food for all, around 3,000 uh, kilo uh, calories per day, which is uh, a third more than is required as a minimum sort of intake. Um, but um, while there is enough food at a national level to, to, to feed everyone adequately, um, inadequate uh, access to food is, is primarily a question of income. And when you have people living uh, below the poverty line and you have incomes which are so unequal in South Africa, mm-hmm. um, food prices, yeah, they're, they're immediately impacted because the, the, the number one concern for 98% of people is, is whether or not they have enough money in their pockets to actually buy food. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, very, very dire times indeed. And maybe when we come back, we'll deal with uh, what should uh, be the response from governments and also the private sector as well within this particular region. And that's the question we're asking on our Twitter handle, at Channel Africa One and at African Dialogue. We're asking, are African governments doing enough to prepare for environmental disasters such as the drought experienced in Southern Africa? Give us your views there, at Channel Africa One. That's the numeric one at the end or at African Dialogue. We want to hear from you. Or you can SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Today we're speaking to uh, Daniel McLaren, the senior researcher at Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute. And Ishmael Shunga is also with us, the chief executive officer of the Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions. We also have the economist from Grain South Africa, one giving us their views on uh, food security in Southern Africa. This is a story that we'll continue to look at uh, and it's a very, very, uh, very, very sensitive issue and one that we should be actually uh, locating and looking at on a constant level. Give us your thoughts. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Let's quickly move on and get a quick break and then we'll come back to our guests. 
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This hour, you with me, Benjamin Moshatama. The program you're listening to is African Dialogue. We, every day from Monday to Thursday, we bring in the best experts really to unpack some of the big topics on the continent of Africa. Remember, you are listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. That's our shortwave service into the continent. On DSTV, we're on Channel 902. And online, you can stream us live every day from www.channelafrica.co.za Remember, you can also listen to the African Dialogue podcast after each program. Go to the multimedia section, click on African Dialogue and there you can get each topic every day on what we feature on our program here, really focusing on African issues. That's what we're all about right here on Channel Africa. Today, we're looking at uh, the real intense heat waves, scorching temperatures, little rain in southern Africa. Food supply seems to be a very uh, immense pressure in this particular region and seems to be the problem also. The import of maize is becoming a big, big supply for uh, this particular region. And we're looking at the impact in this regard. I want to come back to uh, uh, us in this particular conversation. Wandile Ishmael, Daniel, bring you back into this conversation, looking at uh, the response mechanisms that we can have for farmers, for economists, for uh, normal individuals. Are there other alternatives that we can actually look at in dealing with this particular problem? Wandile, from an economical perspective, what should be the response mechanisms to this particular drought? How should we actually ensure that governments and the private sectors are working together to deal with this situation? Now, look, uh, speaking uh, in, in a South African perspective or background, uh, uh, to a larger point, is that uh, our handling of the supplies and everything of the grain is mainly done by the private sector. Uh, so there is not much of the government intervention of saying that we bother purchasing certain food uh, you know, for, for the country, mm. like maybe it might be the case in, in the other parts. So we already know now that, you know, we will have a bit of a shortage and we will need to bring about around about 3.8 million tons of maize from now up until next year. And that basically means that, you know, South Africans, the consumers, will be facing, you know, a bit of a higher prices. So that already being priced in in the market, I would say that going forward, we would like now maybe to think around about the mechanism of actually fixing on the supply side of South Africa, meaning that uh, putting on some measures to support the farmers 
to say that, okay, uh, we know that the farmers are under financial strain now, and uh, this has, has actually kicked off the, the, the supply in a bad way. So what should we do to make sure that these farmers don't fall off the cliff? They are able to get back in production, because if that happens and we get good rainfalls at the end of this year, then everything else will, will pretty much be good. And that can be done in different ways. You know, we can come up with some crop insurances, and that if there's crop insurance from the governmental side, in that way you'll be able to enable the financial institutions to sort of like a relax some of the terms, be able to borrow some of the guys that are in debt, some of the money. You can subsidize the interest rate, you can do forms of consolidation of the debt. And I mean, this the, the thing also bringing on in a continental view, we have to be conscious that around about 42% of maize production in SADC is produced by South Africa. So if you have a problem here, you to some extent have a problem in the whole region. And if you look at the region, uh, 15 member states of SADC, you take 14 members out, and you look where they source their maize imports in many in, in usual years, you find out around about 69% to 70% mm-hmm. of the SADC maize imports comes from South Africa. So if you fix the supply side here and you make sure that, you know, the farmers are back in production and they're producing large volumes, the prices automatically come mm. to the lower levels and the whole region, then the oil consumers get to benefit in that. So I think the measures should really be on how do we support the farming community so that the supply side can be good and then if the supply side can be good, the spillovers can go to the, to the consumer side. But short term for consumers, uh, for sure, for some of the poor homes, maybe the government can start to be thinking about what are some of the ways that you can support some certain households. Like uh, Daniel said, 16 million South Africans are under uh, earning social grants, so definitely such food increases where you find out that in their budgets, 70% or so is dedicated to food. So significant increases like this will surely have an impact in that. So there should be a thinking on how we deal with that. But going long term, let's really focus more on on, on, on making sure that we we, we strengthen the supply side of our food side. And the farmers are doing stuff. You know, we have conservation agriculture, which we seek to conserve some of the soil moisture that are being done in the farming community. There's fellow land practices. There's research continuing in the private sector about the best seed varieties and stuff like that. So that so there is a working, and I think the government is recognizing that, and I think there is more that can still be done going forward. Hmm. Your thoughts there, Ishmael, on some of the views brought by uh, Wandile? I totally agree with Wandile, I'm saying, particularly on the, on, the, um, on, on the supply side. I mean, there's need to urgently address the matter because it has both short-term now and, and medium-term and long-term issues. If farmers don't have the confidence to plant the next crop, then we are in much more serious disaster. So, so having to stabilize the situation is an immediate action that is required. And uh, we need to look at how to address the financial impact that um, this um, problem has on farmers. And, uh, and, and um, also bearing in mind that the issue is now multi-sectoral. It's no longer about farmers. Yes, farmers are at the forefront, but it's now more, much, much broader. It's affecting the whole industry. Uh, and if one uh, assumes that um, the industrial development of um, Africa, and Southern Africa in particular, is going to be agro-based, this is going to be a serious dent on, um, on, on, on our efforts to industrialize and value-add in Southern Africa. So we need the whole community of interested stakeholders to be on the table. And that includes the private sector itself, because farmers have borrowed massively uh, from, from banks in anticipation to repaying it, uh, obviously. But now there's a predicament. What solutions could come from the private sector? Could they be debt relief? Could they be debt rescheduling? Um, if uh, one looks at government, what can government do about it? 
in the case for as an example, uh, interest rate stabilization, um, tax write-off of some kind. So I think thinking together, I think is what I'm trying to say that it's no longer about farmers alone, and it can get worse. And let's address the situation now and begin to think more about the future. And in my view, the future is going to be based more on the issue to do with uh, having climate resilient infrastructure mm-hmm. that uh, allows us to take in the long haul. Let's assume, let's, and that is correct mm-hmm. in any case, mm-hmm. that um, climate change droughts are going to be more prevalent, are going to be, um, are going to be much, 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 much worse um, and unpredictable. Mm. Uh, and so, so it, it is going to be the new, new. So let's prepare for the new, new. And therein uh, lies the issues of um, information to predict the future, in order to be able to manage the future. So ICTs, uh, relating where the early warning systems and patterns are fundamental in going forward uh, from from where we are now. And 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 then we are looking at technologies. You already alluded to. Um, Primary smart agriculture, conservation agriculture, to do more with less water is all that will be required. Then there's going to be finance. I think finance that is going to be appropriate to deal with something that is so fundamental and dramatic. Mm. I think the finance of agriculture should factor in the fact that it is a critical sector that is with tentacles reach far and wide, social, economic, industrial, you name it. So it needs to be structured in such a way that there is more development finance than purely, purely commercial finance. Mm. And then finally, yes, we are in a dire situation, but if we spend too much um, time looking about now and not about the future, we run the risk of actually setting ourselves uh, into the now. Let's deal with the now, but the objective being on how do we move to avoid and even grow agriculture from the forthcoming season and beyond. Well, let me wrap it up with you, Daniel, in looking at it from a people's perspective, because we can look at the economy, we can look at the people who are involved in production, the farmers themselves, but how do we as ordinary citizens respond to this drought? What's our responsibility in it? Well, I think... Um you know, long-term uh, questions are, are crucial. You know, food, food is something that, that you have to be looking 10, 15, 20 years ahead. But the immediate crisis requires also immediate solutions. And I think in terms of ordinary people, um, thinking about also the media, civil society, I think uh, in terms of just getting some urgency to this issue and just getting some extra pressure on governments which who, who are beginning to, I think, take cognizance of the of the, um, I mean, we can call it a crisis now, but it, it's certainly going to be a crisis when, when the food price increases really kick in in the, in the next uh, six months, in the next year. Um, so I think, you know, shows like this, it's excellent to raise awareness. I think the media could do a lot more um, to not only be raising awareness about the kind of economic situation, the depreciation of certain currencies against the dollar and those problems, but actually giving um, people a sense of the stories behind the statistics the family which is suffering from hunger but who lives um, you know, within 10 kilometers of an urban area, the, the child who suffers from, from malnutrition. I think there needs to be uh, people who are actually suffering from, from hunger need to be given a voice 
um, in the discussion, and I think that's going to be essential at just focusing minds at the at the urgency of the situation, um, mm-hmm. and just just as, you know giving people that voice into the debate because if we if we just talk about this in the abstract, you know we can we can devise certain policies, but we do need to. Um, in South Africa and, and in the region involve people, I think, a bit more in some of the, the policy-making processes that um, ultimately are going to you know, af- affect them and their rights. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to wrap it up, and uh, we've got a uh, few minutes left. Let me come to you, Wandile. Um, what are we learning right now as uh, a region from this particular drought? Are there any specifics that we can draw from this? Uh, you know, Should we have a mechanism where we store uh, maize? Should we actually think emergency, even in states of comfort or moments where things seem to be going right, should we be thinking differently when it comes to agriculture? I think I think what we're learning more is, is the importance of the sector. I think Ishmael did touch on this, but you know, uh, the impact now, it might feel like it's still on the farming community, but it's still, of course, going to affect the economy on the, on, the, on the trade balance side of the agricultural commodities. Uh, it's going to affect on the employment side. It's going to affect the manufacturers when they need to bring these uh, quantities, these volumes that are needed for their side, really on the financial of that. I think to, to a large extent, the society at large, maybe out of this, they're going to start to realize the importance of the sector and the sense that, you know, there needs to be increased investments uh, about all the activities being on the research side to strengthen uh, our abilities so that when we actually get to be in a situation where we are faced by challenges like this, we are better prepared uh, about having better seed varieties and also on the livestock side and having some of the mechanisms being uh, in place to actually support on that side. So really, it, it's, a reflective, it's a time to reflect and see the challenges and really look at the investments and what we can actually do and also just a sense of the importance in the sector and how it can, uh, in a short period of time, affect the, the, the whole roundup of the economy. Because even in the South African side, you look at the GDP figures, they've been uh, revised the estimation for, for growth in this year down, and a larger part of that has been attributed also to the drought. So you can sort of see the impact that the sector could actually have, and uh, more could be done on the investment side going forward. And let me get your final sentiments, Ishmael. Um, I, I, I think... Um, the, the the current situation, in a way, is indicative of um, errors, past errors of commission or mission on our part. We, we know that um, the, the, the climate change is now constant, and we need to invest, or we need to have, to have, to have invested much more than we have done up to now in in, in, in deliberate efforts to uh, to boost up our climate-related kind of infrastructure, including the information and communication systems, so that um, we are better able to predict and manage the opportunities and risks that come with the future. So my really main word uh, now, advice, is that um, let's deliberately and purposely look at how we catalyze both private-public sector investment into understanding what uh, are going to be the patterns in the medium and long term and how best to begin to invest in the physical and other intellectual infrastructure and quality mm, management. Mm, mm. 
Well, uh, thank you so much. We have to wrap it up there. Yeah. We have to wrap it up there. I'm sorry to cut you off thank there, you. Ishmael. But thank you to Ishmael Sunga, the Chief Executive Officer of the Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions. Thank you as well to Wandile Sithorb, economist as Grain SA. Dr. Uh, Mr. Daniel McLaren also joins us. He is from the Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute. He's a senior researcher. Thank you all for joining us on our program today. Thank you. Thank you. What are your thoughts? Hey, do you think that uh, governments are doing enough to actually deal with uh, agricultural or uh, environmental challenges such as the drought that we're facing currently? Give us your thoughts. Uh, SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. It's eleven forty five. Let's take a quick break and then uh, we'll move on and get our economics update uh, from Wisani Matebula. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning. Thanks, Benjamin. Turnover at Côte d'Ivoire's national airline, Air Côte d'Ivoire, is up 34%. The company, which was founded in 2013, plans to increase its destinations from 19 to 22 as it seeks to raise capital to fund an increase in its fleet. Air Côte d'Ivoire is 65% state-owned, with Air France KLM holding a 20% stake and Ivorian private investor Golden Road holding 15%. Rwanda's aviation industry players have called for the implementation of the planned open airspace along the Northern Corridor states. The East African Community Northern Corridor member countries agreed to open their airspace effective from January the 1st. The members include Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya and South Sudan. EAC is one of the regions with high air travel charges, which is partly blamed on closed airspace, among other things. And the Gupta family spokesperson in South Africa, Nazim Hoa, says uh, the Oak Bay Group, a Gupta-affiliated firm, is among seven companies supplying the Arnold power plant in Bumalanga province. The Guptas and the power utility ESCOM have dismissed claims by the National Union of Mine Workers that uh, the failed partnership between ESCOM and Exaro was based on Gupta-affiliated company favoritism. Hoa says ESCOM now stands to save taxpayers money with a new deal. Seven companies are now supplying the same power station that Exaro was. Between the seven of us, we're supplying 15%. Uh, ESCOM is making a saving of just over 50% on the rate they paid Exaro. Now that 50% equates to 2 billion of taxpayer money that's being saved. So if you say 2 billion over a 40-year period, it's 80 billion rand that could be saved going forward. Senegal has hailed the discovery of offshore gas reserves, estimated at 450 billion cubic meters, as a game-changer for the West African nation. U.S. firm Cosmos says it's a Gumbiel One exploration well located in the northern part of St. Louis offshore profound license area in Senegal. 
made a significant gas discovery. The company says it is a world-class uh, resource that extends into both Senegal and Mauritania. And still about commodities, oil prices are dropping after China and South Korea posted surprisingly weak economic data. Front month Brent crude is trading at 35.54 per barrel, which is down 45 American cents from the last close. U.S. West Texas Intermediate is also down 35 cents and 33.27 dollars per barrel. That's how it's looking now. I'm back in an hour's time with another update. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views, and great African entertainment. Bonjour à tous. Merci encore une fois d'être sur Channel Africa. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Time now for the sports with Musibudi Makura. Thank you, Benjamin. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with football news, Zambian coach George Lewandamina has described his team's loss to Guinea um, after post-match penalties as unfortunate, though he heaped praise for his players for a good job done in, in the tournament. Lewandamina added that, the, that in the penalties, it was not too easy to know how the results would be as he congratulated Guinea for going through. Zambia lost 4-5 on the post-match penalties as Guinea qualified for the semi-final after extra time. Shapolopolo exits the tournament with their heads held high after being the only team that did not concede a goal in the open play. Guinea will meet the DR Congo who aced out Rwanda in the first semi-final on Wednesday at the Amaru Stadium.
Meanwhile, the Nigerian Football Federation has debunked the rumour that they are planning to sank Super Eagles head coach Sande Oliesi over Nigeria's early exit from the ongoing African Nations Championship currently underway in Rwanda. NFF Assistant Director Media Adumela Orari says the Federation will have, rather still has faith in Oliesi's ability to revamp the Super Eagles and describe the speculations on the coach's impending sacking as false. Orari revealed that the NFF have already started a program that would aid Oliesi to qualify Nigeria for the 2017 African Nations Cup tournament, adding that the Federation was also committed to the national team's entire quest to qualify for major championships this year. He revealed that the body has already started making moves to, or rather for grade A friendlies for the Super Eagles to put the team in a good shape ahead of the qualifiers, maintaining that all hands must be on the deck to assist the senior national team to regain respect in the football circles. Back home on to local football news. Absa Premiership title contenders Bedvedsvets suffered their fourth loss of the season. Against Bluefoot in Celtic on Sunday, Celtic had gone eight straight matches without a win and this was um, coach Sarame Lozoga's first victory in five matches. Mohamed Ali reports. Musa Niatama, with a penalty three minutes into stoppage time, ended Bloemfontein Celtic's nine-match winless run as they came from a goal down to beat Bidvestwitz 2-1 at the Dr. Petrus Malomelo Stadium. The clever boys, who needed the three points to keep up with log leaders Mamelodi Sundowns, took the lead ten minutes before half-time, when Elias Palembe side-footed home from close range after lovely interplay involving Siabonga Nishlapo and Dane Clayt. But Tapelo Morina, with his fourth goal of the season, equalised for Celtic five minutes into the second half, following a quick free-kick from deep inside their own territory that caught the Wits defence napping as Larato Lamola sprinted away from the opposition before neatly laying the ball off to Morina to put the ball into an empty net. Niatama then stepped up to net the winner from the penalty spot after Wits goalkeeper Munib Josephs fouled a goal-bound Lamola and was very lucky to get away with only a yellow card. Meanwhile, Padam Stars have consolidated their top five position after beating second from Bottom University of Pretoria 2-0 at the Royal Buffeting Sports Palace in Rustenburg. University of Pretoria came into the match in high spirits following their 1-0 win against Mpumalanga Black Aces a week ago. The new University of Pretoria head coach Sean Barclay says he knows what areas to work on. It's difficult to have an impact after only one and a half days. But also, this is also a lesson for our players. If you make two mistakes like we did, you're going to get punished. When you come up against a quality team, confident team, uh, you've got to work hard. And those are things for me, obviously, to work on in the next uh, coming weeks. And finally, in golf news, Brennan Grace has won the Commercial Bank Qatar Masters for a second year in a row. The award number 11 closed with a round of 69 in windy conditions for 14 under par and a two-strokes win over Rafa, Carabia, Bello and Thobian Olsen. Nekda reports. It's the first time anyone successfully defended the title in Doha and Grace has done it in some style in very testing conditions. He barely looked troubled across a weekend of strong winds and now has European Tour victory number seven. Two strokes back at the start of the day, he moved ahead when Paul Laurie suffered a double bogey at the ninth. The Scot couldn't recover and Grace always had other rivals at arm's length. Cabrera Bayo's eagle putt narrowly missed at the last or it could have been a tense finale. Grace had previously enjoyed five successive top ten finishes. He was a pre-event favourite. The win was coming. Those are your sports news at the South State tuned to China Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Well, that's how we call it a wrap. Thank you for joining us once again on our program. Uh, remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Remember, follow us on Twitter at African Dialogue or at Channel Africa One. And uh, don't forget to send us your views today. We're asking about the issue that we were talking about today. Are African governments doing enough to deal with... Uh, a crisis when it comes to uh, the environment. Look at what's happening in Southern Africa. There's a huge drought there. Are we seeing governments really leading us the proper way when it comes to these particular issues? Give us your thoughts. SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Or you can also email us at info at channelafrica.org. Don't forget our Twitter handle at African Dialogue. That's how we wrap it up. We'll be back same place same time tomorrow from me benjamin mushatama till tomorrow god bless would like to get to know you our listener so we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station is it via shortwave internet or satellite and what do you enjoy